Good afternoon, church. Uh, would you guys please remain standing with me for the reading of God's word? We're going to be reading from Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46. And it says, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the, first, for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be, be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The word of God for the people of God. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I hope that y'all are doing well. My name is Marco, and I serve as the preaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. It's a joy to be with y'all. In the event that you just walked in or you didn't catch Miguel, we're going to find ourselves in Matthew 26. We're looking at verses 36 to 46 this afternoon. While you open or load your Bibles, one of the things that we haven't spoken about in a a while are some of our missional efforts. And this is something that's kind of on the cuff, and and we'll, we'll talk more about this in the weeks to come. But one of the missional efforts that we as a church are involved in is church planting. And one of the ways in which we do that is through our partnership with Acts 29, which is a church planting network. The reason I bring this up is because this week my wife and I got the chance to be in Dallas for a couple of days to help assess, interview, coach, equip uh, church planters and their wives. And the reason I tell you this is because you have a big role in this. As a church, we have this uh, partnership with Acts 29 where we give towards church planting uh, endeavors. And one of the ways in which we help is by assessing some of these planters and their wives as they begin to plant churches, as they begin to uh, minister to people in their context. And so your generosity not only funds church plants, but also gives us the opportunity to minister, coach, and equip some of these planters and their wives. So thank you all so much for that. In the coming weeks, you're gonna hear more about some of these missional efforts, primarily through the branch of church planting. And if you got questions, hit me up afterward. Other than that, that's my biggest update to you. I'd like to dig right into our time once more. We're gonna be in Matthew 26, looking at verses 36 to 46. And I got this fascinating kind of question for you, and that is, did you know that there are several theories for why a moth or moths are attracted to flame? It's one of the most fascinating things. Uh, Not really, but it it connects to what we're gonna be talking about. According to uh, some experts, they suggest that artificial light resembles frequencies of light released by the pheromones of female moths. That sounds really complicated. Um, Others suggest that light attracts moths by communicating that it's time to settle down and call it a night, right? As the sun comes up, that means they're gonna uh, uh, stop doing their thing, and so light kind of simulates that communication. 
Others say that the reason they're attracted to light is because they kind of get drunk. It disorients them. It's this really weird theory. I'm not, I found this on Discovery, okay? Like, I don't know if that is true or not, but I do know that that's one of the suggestions. The theory is that it disorients them. And you're wondering, what does this have to do with the Bible? Well, you and I are like moths sometimes. You see, in seasons or circumstances or varying situations where we know how we should uh, probably respond or live, right? we are oftentimes more attracted to move toward our temptation to give in, respond poorly, and live dishonorably and dishonestly. We, like moths, are attracted to the flames of temptation in ways that you and I might communicate this this temptation is greater than the grace of Jesus. This afternoon, we're coming to the conclusion of our series on prayer where our goal was to help point you toward embracing the prominence of prayer, of communion with God personally and corporately. In our text, we're going to examine one of the last prayers of Jesus as he's about to experience complete anguish on the cross, and in this situation, rather than seeing him avoid God, we see Jesus submit himself to God. Unlike you and I who are drawn toward temptation, we see Jesus fervently resist temptation through submission. And so your main idea is that submission to God in prayer strengthens and sanctifies us to live for God. Our submission to God in prayer strengthens and sanctifies us to live for God. So let me pray, and then we'll dig into this text together. Father, we begin this time by praising you for your goodness. Your goodness in our salvation, your goodness in giving us life both physically and spiritually by your spirit, and your goodness in our gathering, that we get to sing songs and exalt the name of Jesus and examine your word. And to that effect, Father, we pray for your word to penetrate our hearts, for your word to sober our minds, to shape our hands so that we would be drawn closer to Jesus and to know him more. And Father, for those who are here who do not know you, our prayer is that they would come to know you today. We thank you and we praise you. We ask all this in your name, amen. Well, we're gonna be looking at three observations in this text, and throughout this narrative, we're going to see a pattern or a contrast between Jesus in prayer and his interaction with the disciples. And we're gonna see this throughout this whole narrative. Jesus goes and prays, Jesus interacts with the disciples. Prayers, interaction. We're gonna see this pattern at least three times in this text as we see Jesus pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so because of that, let me give you some context as to what's happening here. At this point, Jesus has already instituted the Lord's Supper. Judas has left him to go and betray him, and his arrest before his ultimate crucifixion is now only hours away. And so Jesus comes to this garden called Gethsemane. Gethsemane was this walled and private, privately owned garden. Uh, Jesus went there frequently for solitude, for prayer, and to also be with his disciples. 
Gethsemane means olive press. That's the translation of this garden. It means olive press. And it was a place where olives would be crushed under great pressure and the fluid of the olives would come out. And so this kind of gives us this metaphor to the intense spiritual pressure Jesus was experiencing. And as Jesus makes his way to Gethsemane, this is because it's not the first time he's been there, Jesus isn't making himself hard to find in the remaining hours before his false arrest and trial. He's not trying to escape. He's not trapped. He's not ensnared. In fact, as he goes to Gethsemane, it's this representation of him willingly going to the cross by purposely making himself not hard to find. And so the text picks up where he takes the disciples to the garden, and at this point, it's only 11 of them. So he takes the 11 with him, and he tells them to wait at the garden. Going on, beginning in verse 36, Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he told his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And then he invites his closest friends of that group. He invites James, John, and Peter to come with him. He continues, taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled, and he said to them, my soul, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. So Jesus invites three of his closest friends, tells them that he's very sorrowful, even to the point of death. And so here we're seeing Jesus pull the curtains back and share his heart with his closest friends. It's at this point where Jesus is beginning to feel the absolute weight of what's about to happen to him. It's not simply that he knows he's going to be arrested and crucified, it's the stress and pressure that's so overwhelming and weight and weighty that he feels like it might even kill him right then and there. In fact, in Luke's account, Luke goes on to say, say that there was an angel sent from heaven to strengthen him because of the agony he was in, and he was under such distress concerning what was about to happen that he was literally uh, sweating drops of blood. And so he's folding the three into what's about to happen to him. He's folding the three by sharing his heart with them, and he gives them some instructions, and then we get to see Jesus' prayer. And the instructions that he gives these three disciples is, hey, I need you to watch and pray with me. I need you to watch. He goes on to say, he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful. Remain here and watch with me. The word watch means to stay alert, to be aware of what is happening and going on around them, to be sober-minded. And so that's Jesus' request. That's Jesus' instruction to his friends. Hey, I need you to watch with me. I need you to pray with me. My soul is troubled, it's sorrowful, it's weighty. And so here we see Jesus leave them and he falls on his face and he cries out to the Father. Verse 39, going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed saying, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Even in a moment or even in this situation where there's great agony and great anguish, Jesus practices what he's been preaching. The first person he turns to is his father. The first thing that he does is that he cries out to his father. 
The author of Hebrews says it this way, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Just like Jesus instructed and taught the disciples to pray in the Lord's Prayer, hey, we're gonna begin with our Father, just like we see Jesus pray to the Father in the high priestly prayer that we examined these last two weeks, here in his moment of agony, he's doing the exact same thing. He cries out and turns to the Father. And here we're seeing the humanity of Jesus on display, meaning he's gonna put it all on the table before his Father. And what's the request? If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Not my will, but as you will. Here we're beginning to see Jesus, even in his humanity, align his will to the Father's. And he references the cup. And Jesus has talked about the cup to his disciples before in in Matthew's account. And if you're unfamiliar with that little phrase, the cup, to better understand it, we need to go back to the Old Testament. And one of the areas where the cup is best illustrated is Psalm 75. Here's what the psalmist writes. For in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. In this illustration, the cup represents the wrath of God. All of God's anger, all of God's wrath, all of our sin, all of our guilt is in this cup, and it's what Jesus is about to drink. And so in this first part of his prayer, as Jesus comes before the Father, we see his humanity, we see his will lining to the, to the Father's will or aligning to the Father's will, while at the same time being super honest. If there's another option, please let me know. Let's consider that. But not my will, though. Let it be yours. And so that's the first part of Jesus' prayer. Now we see Jesus come to the disciples. And what do we see? He goes on to say, this is verse 40, and he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. We'll talk more about that in a bit. So Jesus goes and prays. He falls on his face. He's crying out to the Father because of what's about to happen. Then Jesus comes to the disciples, and what's going on? Jesus is aligning his will to the Father's, and the disciples aren't. See, Jesus had been telling the disciples prior to this moment, Jesus had been telling the disciples over and over and over again about what was going to happen, that he was gonna be handed over, that they were going to flee. He even shared his heart that it's filled with sorrow. His soul is so sorrowful to the point of death. And rather than coming to God to align their will to his, they're oblivious and insensitive, unaligned, In the face of difficulty, what did they do? Absolutely nothing. Here's what I want you to know. 
That's a tactic from the enemy. In his book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis uh, writes of these two characters, Screwtape and Wormwood. And Screwtape is Wormwood's uncle, and he's like this chief demon. And every chapter is a letter from Screwtape to Wormwood on how to draw Christians away from their relationship with God. And so every chapter is a different tactic that he reveals. And so on the chapter concerning prayer, here's what uh, Screwtape writes to Wormwood. He says, the best thing, remember this is an instruction to, to his younger junior demon. He says, the best thing where it is possible is to keep the patient, that is us, to keep the patient from the serious intention of praying altogether. And later on in that chapter, he goes on to saying, if that doesn't work, whenever they are attending to the enemy himself, in other words, whenever we are coming before the Lord, he says, we are defeated, but there are always, there are ways of preventing them from doing so. The simplest is to turn their gaze away from him, that is God, to turn their gaze away from him and toward themselves. So Jesus has been honest with his disciples. Jesus is aligning his will to the fathers. He comes to the disciples and what's going on? They're unaligned. How do you know they're unaligned? They've done absolutely nothing. And so Jesus presses them pastorally with urgency. Not even one hour, Peter, watch and pray for me. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So even there, he pastorally gives them some urgency, even though he's already warned them. Rather than grilling them here, he's still pushing them, urging them to pray. And he does the same thing to you and I. He presses us pastorally. In your prayers, church, in your prayers, when it comes to seasons or circumstances or situations where it's utterly difficult and stressful and just full of agony, do you turn to the Father first? Do you turn to the Father first like Jesus turns to the Father? Do you lay your heart out on the table, no matter how ugly it is, no matter how unorganized it is, do you lay your heart out on the table? Is part of our prayer aligning our will to the Father's will? Author Paul Miller wrote a book called A Praying Life and he says this, The great struggle of my life is not trying to discern God's will. It is trying to discern and then disown my own. See, when we turn to the Father and we align our will to the Father's will, then we have our will. Additionally, it's in that moment of prayer that as we're turning to the Father, as we're aligning our will to his will, where we will begin to wrestle with our own desire, our own motivation. And it's in that moment where you and I have the decision to put to death our will so that we would align it with God's, so that we would be aligned with the Father's. Like, are we as a church individuals, corporately, are we so insensitive or proud like the disciples? Are we so insensitive to our own situations where where we rather justify our personal strength than to submit and confess our need for God's strength? 
are we so insensitive to acknowledge that in our greatest need, or one of our greatest needs, is the fact that we're weak and we need God to strengthen us. What is needed from us in seasons of great distress is not personal self-will, but submission that comes from spiritual watchfulness. Alignment begins with submission. Second observation. Jesus, at this point, leaves once more. He leaves the disciples, and he goes, and he prays. Once more, verse 32, again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Once more, we see Jesus' will aligning with the Father's will. And I want you to notice a couple of things in there, right? This is Jesus. This is fully God, fully man. This is Jesus Christ, God incarnate, the most faith-filled person coming to the Father with an earnest, honest request, and he gets a no. But he doesn't question God's love for him. See, many of you get a no and you think you've been rejected or that you're unloved. I promise you, you're not. God, who is a gracious and good father, will sometimes give you a no because he knows what is best for us. And to further demonstrate this, Jesus knows this. Jesus knows that the only way for the wrath of God to be satisfied It's through the perfect sacrifice of the one who willingly lays his life down. See, that weight, that burden that Jesus is experiencing, it's not so much that he's about to be arrested. It's not so much that he's about to go on trial. That's not so much the weight and stress. The weight and stress that Jesus is experiencing at this point is our guilt being imputed onto him. It's not a fancy word. Our guilt starting to be put on him. Your sin being put on him. That's the weight that he's experiencing. And as Jesus aligns his will, and as Jesus is awake to what the Father has called him to do, Jesus knows he can't save you unless he drinks the cup of God's wrath because there is no other way. Here in the garden, Jesus is thinking about you. For you to be redeemed, I'm gonna step in your place for your sin and drink the cup that is meant for you. Jesus is aligned with the Father's will. Jesus is awake to what is to come. And so now he comes back to the disciples. And what are they doing? They're asleep. They're asleep. Verse 43. And again, again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. Prior to the garden, Jesus warned the disciples over and over again. Hey, I'm gonna be handed to the authorities. They're gonna crucify the Son of Man. And they're like, right, who's better? Right? 
And then fast forward to this moment here, Jesus goes and he prays and he tells the disciples, hey, I need you to pray with me. They don't, they're unaligned, they're asleep, right? And Jesus warns them again, hey, wake up. I need you to watch with me. I need you to pray with me. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. I need this from you. Jesus had warned them. He had told them that Peter was about to deny him. He knew about Judas's betrayal. He knew that the disciples were gonna be scattered. He knew that the religious leaders were gonna conspire against him. He knew that it was the Roman government that was going to crucify him. He had told them all about it, yet they're still asleep, and still he gives them some sort of warning. Peter, wake up, not even one hour. Watch and pray with me. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So let's park there for a little bit. When Jesus references the Spirit here, he's not talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the inner part of us, like our soul. When he talks about the flesh, when you read that little phrase in the Bible, right, that it's our flesh that's the problem, that means that's our desire for corruption, for rebellion. That's our desire for sin. And so Jesus, in one way or another, he's ultimately telling them, like, hey, You are like moths to a flame right now. There is this tension that you are experiencing that you and I experience when we know what we should do and we don't do it because the gravitation of our temptation sometimes is so strong that we can't help but go to the flame. And so Jesus is warning them, your spirit is willing but your flesh is weak. And when you and I experience that level of temptation, let's just be honest and put things on the table. It's really exhausting, isn't it? Where you know, I shouldn't be doing this, I shouldn't even be thinking this, I shouldn't be watching this, I shouldn't have talked to my spouse this way. It's exhausting. It's discouraging. It's defeating. And so Jesus' response to the temptation, the pool of temptation that you and I have is, hey, pray, pray for the Lord to give us strength because temptation doesn't always hit you in the face suddenly. And that's what many of you think. Temptation oftentimes is this gradual increase that comes your way. If you're in a good season, praise God. That doesn't mean you shouldn't be aligned with his will. That doesn't mean you don't have to be awake. Temptation gradually increases. And as it does, and because oftentimes you and I are not caught off guard, you and I are unprepared in those moments, often, not always, but often, you and I think we're stronger. You and I think we're stronger than Satan. Oh, he doesn't know me. Like, do you really think he doesn't know you? You really think he hasn't studied, like, human depravity? You really think he hasn't studied your behavior, the way in which you move and walk and think? Scripture says that he is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. How many times have we turned to ourselves, to our own strength, and often it results in our shame? I'll do better, I'll do it differently next time, yet in all of our tactics and in all of our strategy, we never once turn to the Father first. Never once turn to the Father for strength 
and sanctification specifically for obedience. Why don't you and I like obedience? Because it costs us something. It's gonna cost you your comfort. Some of you have hard conversations that you should probably have. Some of you are in difficult seasons and situations. Some of you need to address certain things that's gonna require your obedience, which means it's going to cost you something. And you're not sure if that's a price you're willing to pay. Hebrews 5, the author continues, although he was a son, speaking of Jesus, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Being awake begins with obedience. Obedience is what is required. Obedience and begging the Lord, falling on our face before him, confessing our weakness, confessing our need for grace and strength, confessing that we want and need to submit to him. See, more than anyone else, Jesus knows that submission is costly. So Christian, are you asleep? In other words, insensitive and unaware of what's going on around you, the temptation that you're around? No? Are you apathetic, distant and cold from the Lord? But it's not because he's done that. It's because either we've embraced our sin and then we're upset because God isn't responding to us as we continue to walk in sin. Are you asleep? Are you apathetic? Here's something that's a little bit more driving that that little dagger a little bit. Verse 43. He came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words. So he's still turning to the Father. He's still putting his, his heart on the table. Then he came to the disciples and said, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. the last time that Jesus comes to them. The first time he comes to them, they're asleep. Hey, watch and pray. The second time, he sees them again sleeping, gives them another warning. Here's the third time, he's coming to them again, and now for the third time, there's no warning. There's no more push. He doesn't interact with them the third time. He doesn't do anything. See, the disciples ignored Jesus' warnings. They didn't think that his warnings were as serious as they were. Jesus had uh, sounded the alarm. Jesus is telling them that the hour is here. Jesus is stressing what's going on. And, And to the disciples, they're insensitive, they're oblivious, they're asleep. And so the last time that Jesus comes to them, he just says one last thing. Get up, let's go. Doesn't interact with them anymore. I want you to notice two things. The first one is sometimes when you and I willingly ignore, avoid, and reject the warnings of God, particularly from his word, God simply hands us to our sin. That doesn't mean he doesn't love you. That doesn't mean he's uh, gonna leave you to yourself. 
That doesn't mean now you gotta figure it out on your own, no, 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 we'll, we'll touch that on a little bit. But on this first portion, when you and I willingly avoid, reject, rebel, don't listen to the warnings of God to us through scripture from his word, what we see is that God just hands us to our sin. But again, it doesn't mean he's gonna leave them to themselves. It doesn't mean that we're not gonna learn just like the disciples are gonna learn. But now, the disciples aren't gonna learn through warnings, through their obedience. They're not gonna learn that way. How do they learn? They learn through pain. The disciples were about to learn about suffering, not through warnings, but through pain. What happened? They fled, all of them, in fear. Jesus, or excuse me, Peter denies Jesus three times. John hangs out in the shadows and watches from afar. Mark literally strips down and runs away from uh, the Roman soldiers. All of them flee. Because they were asleep, because they didn't think it was real. To be awake begins with obedience. And the last observation, continuing with what we just read, rather than giving them that final warning, Jesus pokes at them. The NASB translation says it really well. <laughs> Jesus says, get up, let's go. At the beginning of this, we see that Jesus was aligned with the Father's will, but the disciples weren't. Jesus was awake to the temptation that's around him, the disciples avoid it. And here in these final verses, Jesus is alert to the spiritual warfare around him. And check it, he was ready now. Right, let's go back and reread it. Verse 45, he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. Right, get up and let's go. The hour is at hand and the son of man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The first few times when Jesus is praying, you're seeing him pour his heart out on the table, right? You're seeing him align his will to the Father's will. You're seeing Jesus awake because there's temptation all around him. He's folding the disciples into what's going on. They're ignoring, they're avoiding, they're asleep. And here for the last time, Jesus rises up and is ready to face whatever stands before him. His false arrest, his false trial, and ultimately his crucifixion. He was ready to face what was before him, but the disciples were not. There are so many Christians who are arguing, or at least attempting to, they're arguing with God about their will being the primary will. And that might be you, where you're not getting your way and you want God's will to be aligned with your will. How is that going for you? Like straight up, be honest, how is that going for you? There are too many Christians who are asleep toward their own temptation and check it, they're getting picked every single day by the enemy. They're getting sniped every single day because they're asleep to the temptation around them. There are very few Christians 
that are alert to the spiritual warfare around them. And most Christians are like, yeah, I'll be alert, but just enough. You know what I mean? Because being alert for real, for real, that's like for like spec ops Christians, right? It's not for us normies, right? And so the idea behind this is like you might even pray, this might be you, or you even pray like, Lord, uh, I, I need alertness uh, for Sunday because I don't want to fall asleep at the gathering. You're like, oh, that's just enough. That's, that's good. That's good. Like you need to realize Satan hates that you are here. He hates that your Bibles are open. And some of you think that when you leave this building, you're good to go. His tactics are still ready and aimed at you. I want you to be alert like Jesus was alert. I want you to be aligned to the Father's will like Jesus was aligned to the Father's will. I want you to be awake like Jesus was awake to the temptation that was around him. And so how do we do that? How do we face the world, temptation, and all the other things just like Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane where he stands up, says, it's time, let's go, get up. And he's ready to face what's about to hit him. How do we do that? Here are your four practical applications. The first one, it's what we've been seeing Jesus do throughout this entire series, and that is prayer, where we turn to the Father first. This is where we put it all on the table. This is where we put our sorrow and our heart and our temptation and our questions and our doubt, this is where we put it all on the table. And the Father, as we've talked about in this series, man, he loves you. You have access to the Father because of Jesus' work for you, which means he's not irritated by you. He's not wasting his time or he doesn't feel like you're wasting his time. None of that gets to happen. You're not his 8 a.m. because he has an 8.10 later on. No, you have access to the Father 24-7 because of Jesus' work, Jesus' reconciling work for you. So prayer isn't merely petition, it's us turning to the Father who is good and gracious and patient and loving and kind and steadfast and who's all ears and who says, you're mine. You belong to me. You could turn to the Father. Number two, submission. In prayer, Part of the goal is for us to surrender to the Father's will. Listen, I'm not saying that's super easy, like I got it figured out, because I don't, okay? But what I do know is, when we come before the Father and surrender our will, that is a very, very sanctifying prayer. It's sanctifying because it's gonna cost us something. It's gonna cost our self-will. It's gonna cost us our desires. But it is a very strengthening prayer. And just because you get no doesn't mean you've been rejected. It means that God as Father knows what's best and he determines what best is. 
to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul writes about a thorn that was given to him in the flesh. And he goes on to say, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. So he's praying, get rid of this thorn. Nobody really knows what the thorn is. Some people say it was pride. Some people say it was a bunch of other things. And so he's telling, he's begging, he's asking the Father, hey, get this away from me. Take it away from me. And here's what God responds with. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul goes on to say, therefore, because God told me this, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, I am content. I'm content with weakness, with insults, with hardships, persecution, and calamity. When I am weak, then I am strong. Just because he doesn't pull you out of something doesn't mean he's not gonna get you through something. Submission is hard because it's going to cost us something. But it's a very, very sanctifying and strengthening prayer. That's what Jesus was doing. The, guard, uh, the prayer at the Garden of Gethsemane is a very like mature prayer. That's a very hard prayer. Not my will, but your will. Not what I want but what you want. Number three, get in community. This sounds like a pitch for community groups and discipleship groups, and it is. So get, get in community. Here, here's what, what I mean. Like At the beginning, sometimes we ignore this and even poke fun at it, but at the beginning of, of the garden, right, or the prayer in the garden, Jesus folds his three closest friends. Here it is, like, check it real quick. He knows they're gonna bounce, right? Like this is hours before his arrest. He knows Peter is going to bounce. He knows John, the one who Jesus loved, right? Like he knows John is gonna be in the trees somewhere. He he knows that Mark's gonna be running away in his underwear. Like he knows all of the details of what's about to happen. He's aware that he's even warned them and that doesn't keep him from sharing his heart with them. And so oftentimes we could look at the beginning of that prayer and really just say like, oh man, see, can't trust anybody, look at the disciples, as if we're any, like that's literally us. And so community, you're not looking to make one another perfect, but you are pointing each other to the one who is. And over the last several months, one of the most common things that I hear in our church, now pause, right? Y'all do amazing at community, right? I gave you some stats last week about how our CGs are packed, some of our DGs are doing really well, great. We do really well community, praise God. And yet often, even in the context of community, one of the things I hear the most of is, man, I just don't wanna reach out because they're gonna be busy. I just don't wanna reach out because they're not gonna reach back out to me. It's a lot of me in that. And I get it, it's hard. And it takes work. And relationship takes work, and friendships take work, and sometimes you're gonna say something I don't like, and I'm gonna say something you don't like, and we're gonna address one another, and hopefully it'll be awesome, right? Like, we're gonna, (laughs) community is hard. But here it is, the friend of sinners, the prince of peace, Jesus Christ our Lord, didn't keep him from sharing his heart with his brothers. Get yourself some solid Christian friends. 
who are going to hear your heart, but who are also going to push it. Number four, our confession of weakness. This falls under prayer. Maybe I should have left community for the last one because it's not really in community. Or maybe you should be praying for that. Man, who should I go and talk to today because this church mainly consists of introverts? Not the Agas, I know, because I talk to many of y'all and you always talk about how I just don't know how to make any friends. Well, you're never gonna know how to make any friends if you don't go say hi to someone, okay? Like that's just, that's just practical things. Ask any kindergarten teacher. It's, that's just it, right? Now, with that being said, so maybe pray to the Lord for strength, like when Nacho tells the skeleton, right? Pray to the Lord for strength so that you would talk to one another after service. No te hagas, pray. All right, here we go. Confession. In confession, we're confessing our weakness. Our weakness to what? That we're weak. That we're not as, as, that we're not as strong as we think we are. That we think we know better. So in prayer, are we confessing our weakness? Lord, this is hard. And this is really, really, really tempting. So much so that I don't want to do what you've asked me to do. I want to do what I want to do. Do you confess that you're weak? Let us confess that we are weak. J.C. Ryle, who is a, a bishop in Liverpool, uh, he's also uh, an old theologian. I haven't come up with a cool nickname for him. But here's what he says. concerning this text. Let us live like men on enemies' ground and be always on our guard. We cannot walk too carefully. We cannot be too jealous over our souls. The world is very ensnaring. The devil is very busy. Let your Lord's words ring in our ears daily like a trumpet. Our spirits may sometimes be very willing but our, but our flesh is always very weak. Then let us always watch and always pray. In prayer, we're turning to the Lord. In prayer, we're surrendering our will to his. In prayer, we confess our weakness. In prayer, we ask for strength to make friends. Alertness begins with prayer. Though you and I have tendencies, very great tendencies, to be like moths to flame, giving in to our temptation and our desires, the good news is that there is one who bore that flame in our place and suffered the consequences of it in our stead, that we would be sanctified, that we would be strengthened by him in these exact moments. Jesus Christ, who lived a sinless life and died a sinner's death in our place and for our sin and rose from the dead through the power of the Spirit, now gives you the grace to be forgiven, empowered, and no longer enslaved to your sin. The prayer of Jesus in Gethsemane is a reminder that by God's grace, you and I can face temptation and the world by submitting to the Father's will and being strengthened and being sanctified in order to face whatever comes our way. You and I are not unaware of the devil's schemes. You and I are not oblivious to our own corruption. In fact, so much so that if you belong to Jesus, the Spirit of God resides in you so that you always, 24-7, have access to the Father. So, Christian, 
Where are you unaligned to the Father's will right now? We're not unaware, right? What keeps you from surrendering? Where are you asleep right now to temptation? Do you need others around you? Where are you unalert to the spiritual warfare happening around you right now? In this time, let me invite you to confess your sin before the Lord so that you would receive grace, so that you would receive the grace to be strong and to be sanctified. Come before the Lord. Don't waste our time today together. Come before the Lord. And if you're not a Christian, thank you for being here. You stand in opposition to God because your authority is your own will and admitting the authority of God rubs you the wrong way because it means that you're not fully in control and that you are not the highest authority. How is that going for you? See, the cup of God's wrath is still over you, but God has made a way for you to escape it through Jesus. And Jesus pardons all who turn to him in faith and repentance. Church, submission to God in prayer sanctifies and strengthens us in our walk with God. Let's pray. Father, you are good and gracious, even when we are not. Your will is perfect and is the purpose of our good and your glory. Your heart is for us, even when ours isn't for you, yet in your grace, you love us abundantly. And this is best demonstrated through sending your son, Jesus Christ, to live a life that we cannot and die a death in our place and for our sin. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are reconciled to you. Lord, you have transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of your light. Father, Father, forgive us when we are too stubborn to align our will to yours. Forgive us when we are too distant and apathetic to stay awake. Forgive us when we are too proud to be alert to the spiritual war around us. By your Spirit, strengthen us this afternoon through communion, through confession, sanctify us by your grace.